Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 305th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I'm your host, Diane. On this episode, I have a doozy for you guys. The Black Dahlia Murder House, otherwise known as the John Soudan House. I've long been fascinated by this unsolved crime, and I actually featured it as one of my haunted true crimes. But I wanted to do an episode that everyone could listen to that really does a deep dive into this. And of course, at the end, we're going to have some hauntings included. Obviously, because of the nature of the crime I'm going to be talking about, this is definitely not for younger ears. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Hans, Jenny with an I, Charlie, Lauren M and Lauren D, Jeremy, Sarah with an H, Beverly with an EY, Heather, Jen, Paris, Becca, Kattery, I hope I said that right, Cody with an I, Morgan, Jody with an IE, and Linz. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment, Naughty. The moment Naughty was suggested by Michael Rogers. There's a sound so scary that when you hear it, It not only unnerves you, but it literally makes your skin crawl. I love using skulls in my decor, but I never imagined that a skull could be used to make a terrifying sound. I also never imagined that a whistle could be formed in such a way that it makes such a chilling noise. Welcome to the Aztec Death Whistle. Ever heard a zombie wail? How about a banshee cry? Better yet, how about the screams of a sacrifice victim? That is how I would describe the noise made by the death whistle. The first of these whistles was found by archaeologists decades ago, and at that time, they thought they were just decorative pieces. Aztecs liked skull decor like myself, after all. Now, I'm not sure who was the first person to purse their lips on the hole at the top of the skull and blow, but when they did, I'm sure everyone around them ran for cover. And that is why scholars believe that these whistles were used by the Aztecs in war as a type of psychological warfare. Imagine a hundred warriors running at you with the multiplied sound of screams. Since a whistle was found clutched in the hand of what was believed to be a sacrifice victim in a place used to worship the god of wind, some scholars believe that the death whistle was used during sacrifice ceremonies. 
We'll probably never know the real purpose of the death whistle, but the fact that it can make such a realistic human scream certainly is odd. And you guys just know I have to play you a sample. So watch your ears and get ready to be unnerved. was really something. And now, this month in history. of August, on the 7th in 1789, Congress enacts legislation that gave the federal government control over the creation and maintenance of lighthouses. This act also included beacons, buoys, and public piers. As we all know, lighthouses were built in a way to warn ships of dangerous rocky areas or to guide them back to land. They were especially effective during storms and heavy fog. While today radar and GPS has made the need for lighthouses obsolete, We all appreciate their long history of saving lives and their symbol is safe harbor. And for those of us at HGB, we appreciate their many tales of hauntings. In 1989, Congress passed a resolution that made August 7th of that year National Lighthouse Day. Although it's not an annual event yet, many lighthouse organizations treat it as though it is an annual thing. Maybe someday Congress will get with the program and make it official. So what is your favorite lighthouse? Mine, of course, is St. Augustine Lighthouse, but we've covered many amazing lighthouses on the podcast, and I really do love them, even though climbing them scares the crap out of me. To title this episode, Black Dahlia Murder House, is a bold move, as the murder of the Black Dahlia remains unsolved. This is actually the John Soudon house, but the man I believe killed Elizabeth Short lived here for a time, and I believe he murdered her and many other women in this house, which is one of the most unique homes, architecturally speaking. The torture and murder that took place here has left a negative spiritual residue that has led to hauntings. Not only that, but the Black Dahlia herself is not at rest and has been seen in several locations in her spirit form. Join me as I explore the murder of the Black Dahlia, her killer, and the history of the house that ties the two together, the Souden House. As I said in the intro, I have long been fascinated with the story of Elizabeth Short and her unsolved murder. I've always been a big fan of unsolved mysteries and murders. This one, to me, is the ultimate. It is an unsolved murder and a mystery all wrapped up into one. The details are gruesome, and so I do warn those of you that might have issues with details of murders. I'm going to go into the details of what happened to this woman, so this may not be the episode for you. One of the first haunted true crime bonus casts I did for executive producers was about the Black Dahlia and her spirit. In that, I made a claim about whom I thought did the murder. This last year, the podcast Root of Evil Dropped, hosted by the great-granddaughters of George Hodel, sisters Rasha, Pecorero, and Yvette Gentile, as a companion to the TNT limited series I Am the Night. 
It was an excellent podcast, and I encourage you to listen to it, especially if you want to get into the deep details about the Hadell family. By the time I finished it, I knew I was right in thinking that George Hodell was a sick serial killer and that Elizabeth Short was one of his victims. But before we get into all the details about that, I want to wind back the clock and talk about the three main characters in this episode, and that is George Hodell, Elizabeth Short, and the Soudon House. First up, let's get him out of the way, George Hodell. If you've never seen a picture of George Hodell, I encourage you to Google him. I don't think I'm the only one who gets the creeps looking at him. There's something sinister in those eyes. He looks like he's got it all together, a rich, suave guy, but it's the eyes. And the eyes are the windows to the soul, they say. And when I look in those, I see something else there. And it's not a suave, debonair guy. This guy was seriously weird in a bad way. We're all a bunch of weirdos at History Goes Bump, but not like this. He was obsessed with incest and enjoyed hosting an orgy or two. And the Marquis de Sade, for whom we get the word sadist, was a hero of his. His interest in the art of surrealist Man Ray would lead him to do depraved things. Who the heck was this freak? Hodel was born in October of 1907 to Russian Jewish parents. He grew up in Los Angeles and was highly intelligent. He graduated from high school early and entered the prestigious California Institute of Technology, Caltech, in Pasadena. There he met the wife of one of his professors, and the two began an affair that left her pregnant. He wanted to marry her, but she pushed him away. He eventually met another woman named Amelia, and they would have a son they named Duncan in 1928. He left her and took up with a model named Dorothy Anthony, whom he married. They had a daughter named Tamar, whom Hodel would groom for sex from an early age, and he would eventually rape her repeatedly. He had Man Ray take naked pictures of her. Tamar told journalist Sheila Weller, It made me so uncomfortable. My father always said that sex between a father and a daughter was the most beautiful experience. During the time that Hodel was married to Dorothy, he graduated pre-med from Berkeley in 1932 and got his medical degree from the University of California in San Francisco in 1936 with a specialty in gynecology. He would use that degree to do abortions and treat venereal disease. He would then blackmail many of his patients. In 1940, Hadell married a second wife whom also was named Dorothy. She was also the former wife of John Houston. He started calling her Dorero, which was Dolores and Eros combined. Dorero would finally get Tamar out of the house and away from her father. Tamar would later say that Dorero basically saved her. Steve Hadell would be the son of Dorero and George, and he would have two brothers as well. The 1940s was the era of Noor in Los Angeles, and Hodel was a big-time mover and shaker, hanging out with the art scene, particularly surrealist Man Ray. The two men shared an interest in surrealism and also sadomasochism, and lots of sex and drugs. After Hodel bought the Soudan house, he would throw drug-fueled parties and orgies. And he shared the home with both his first wife and second wife. And I don't know that there was any divorce involved there, so I think there was some bigamy going on here, too. 
Tamar finally told the police what her father had done to her, and he was put on trial in 1949. His lawyers got him off and did such a good job that the 14-year-old Tamar was sent to juvenile hall for lying. It would be here that Tamar would be raped and get pregnant at the age of 15. She gave birth to a daughter and named her Fauna. Fauna was given up for adoption to a black clean woman. She would grow up believing that she was a light-skinned black woman, even though she was actually white. When she was 19, she found out the truth that she was not only white, but also the granddaughter of George Hodel. There was a lot of heat going on for George Hodel come 1950, and he decided he better get out of America. Not only had he been put up on these charges for incest, but he had a secretary who had died that some thought that he had killed. And then he also was under suspicion for other murders, specifically the Black Dahlia one. In 1950, he heads to the Philippines where he married his third wife and had four children. They divorced in the 1960s, and he eventually ended up back here in 1990. He had a fourth wife, and then eventually he kills himself with an overdose in 1999 at the age of 91. Too bad he didn't do that about, oh, say, 70 years before that. The next character in this episode is Elizabeth Short. She was a girl with stars in her eyes like so many of us. We have big dreams. We want great things to happen in our life. Maybe that's why so many of us can identify with her. She just wanted to be somebody and to find fame in Hollywood. And I really feel like she just wanted somebody to love her. She had a rough start to life and got herself into some trouble. We all have our moments, don't we? But what is it about her that would lead George Hadell to her and drive him to not only kill her, but torture her and treat her body in the most heinous way and then display it in the most humiliating way to the world. Elizabeth was born to Cleo and Phoebe Short on July 29, 1924 in Hyde Park, Massachusetts. When Elizabeth was five, the Great Depression was in full swing and her father, who made a living by building miniature golf courses, decided he was going to throw in the towel and kill himself. Or at least that's what he wanted everybody to believe. He pulled his car up to a bridge and disappeared leading authorities to believe he had jumped off the bridge and drowned in the river. His family believed the same thing until a letter arrived in the mail from Cleo, apologizing for faking his death and informing Phoebe that he had moved to California but wanted to come home. He had left her to raise five girls on her own, and so she, of course, told him to basically kiss off. As a way to escape from her unhappy and sickly life, Betty, as Elizabeth was called by most of her friends, would go to the movies. She was fascinated by the moving pictures. And Betty was growing into a raven-haired beauty. And a classmate described her as, quote, a porcelain china doll with beautiful eyes. Think of them as blue, but sometimes would change depending on what color she wore and became greenish. Boys would become tongue-tied talking to her because she was so pretty. But she was a sweet girl and made friends with everyone. Basically, she was not what we would call stuck up. Fortunately, she had bad teeth and would use melted candle wax to fill the cavities in her teeth so that you couldn't see the black and decay. She was graceful and determined and wanted to be famous. The irony isn't lost on any of us how she would actually come to gain a fame so immense that a nickname makes her immediately known to most people. She certainly would have wished for a life of obscurity had she known. Eleanor Kurtz had been a good friend of Betty's and she said, Dottie, who was Elizabeth's sister, Betty and I were going to be movie stars. We were all entranced with movie stars, starstruck spent hours talking about movie stars, about going to Hollywood. We performed using the short's front porch as a stage. Every Friday, as soon as the song sheets came out, we'd pool our money, get the latest sheets, and spend hours singing. Betty imitated Deanna Durbin. 
walked like her, talked like her, and in my eyes, sang like her. During her teens, Betty would spend winters in Florida because of lung problems. She had chronic bronchitis and really bad asthma. It was no surprise that when Cleo offered Betty the chance to move to California and stay with him, that she would take him up on it. 1943, she packed her bags and headed to Vallejo, California. Cleo clearly thought that having Elizabeth there would give him a housekeeper, but that was not the case. He found her to be lazy and he disliked her dating practices, and eventually he kicked her out. She found a job as a cashier at the Post Exchange at Camp Cook, where she eventually won a beauty contest and was declared Camp Cutie of Camp Cook. The attention was too much for her and she left for Santa Barbara to live with a girlfriend. It was here that Elizabeth would get caught drinking underage at a restaurant when she and some friends got too rowdy. She was arrested and booked, and her mugshots are some of the only pictures that exist of her today. She was sent back to Massachusetts, but she detoured to Florida. While there, she started dating servicemen and met Major Matt Gordon Jr. The two fell head over heels and planned to marry. The Major was sent to India, and before he could make good on his promise to marry her, he was killed in action on August 10, 1945. Elizabeth was heartbroken and even told friends that she and the Major had actually been married and that she'd been pregnant but lost the baby. There doesn't seem to be any proof of either of those claims. One of the other servicemen she dated in Florida was a pilot named Lieutenant Gordon Fickling. She tried to overcome her heartbreak. She began to correspond with him and probably had plans on getting him to marry her. She met up with him in Chicago and he asked her to join him in Long Beach, where he was stationed at the Naval Reserve Air Base. She ended up staying in Los Angeles and while there are claims that she wanted to be a movie star, she never did pursue any acting jobs that I know of. I haven't ever heard of her auditioning for anything or even having a bit part or two. Rather, she worked as a waitress and couch surfed. When I look at the life that Betty lived, I think she was really down on her luck a lot. And she seems like one of those people that had a hard time sticking with a job. She'd get a job working in a restaurant and then all of a sudden she wouldn't be able to pay for her rent. So I don't know if she was bad at managing money, if she wasn't very good at staying employed. I'm not sure what all was going on there, but she just really was not in a very good space in her life. I get the feeling that she was kind of partying and having a good time and just trying to get by. She stayed with friends like Ann Toth and Lynn Martin, who said, Hollywood is a lonely place when you come into it without home ties or friends and very little money. There are few places for a lonely girl to go except into a bar. Girls start rooming together like old friends. It doesn't matter if they don't know anything about each other. It's somebody to talk to and share the rent with, like Beth and Marjorie and I. You're always lonely in Hollywood, even when you're out with people. They don't belong to you, those people. None of them really care what happens to you. Lots of times the girls talk to each other about getting out of Hollywood and starting all over again. They're going back home or they're going to get married to someone. Down in the heart of all of them is sort of a hazy dream about a husband and a house and a baby. And I shared this quote by Lynn Martin because I thought it really describes probably what was going on with Betty. And it seems like that was the case for a lot of the girls in Hollywood at that time. And perhaps that's why Betty decided to leave Los Angeles for San Diego on December 8, 1946. She also had been very upset about something as she told Mark Hansen, a man in whose home she had stayed for a while. She told him that she was scared and needed to get away. And I don't get the impression that this was, she was afraid that she wouldn't have a place to stay. Like she didn't have money for rent, so she's going to get kicked out or something. I get the feeling that it was kind of a, I'm scared for my life kind of thing. In San Diego, she met Robert Red Manley, a guy who was built nice and very good looking. But he was also married. He offered to drive Betty back to Los Angeles, and he did so on the morning of January 9th, 1947. 
she asked him to drop her at the Biltmore Hotel so that she could meet up with her sister who was visiting from Boston. Red is the last person to have seen Elizabeth alive, other than a few staff members of the hotel who remember seeing her use the lobby telephone and sitting in the Crown Grill cocktail lounge. Apparently, she walked out of the hotel at 10 p.m. wearing a friend's coat and headed south. And a little weird fact to throw in here, Red, who's the guy that dropped her off and he would be one of the suspects in her murder, died on January 9th, 1986, 39 years to the day after leaving Elizabeth Short at the Biltmore Hotel. Elizabeth would be found dead January 15th. Before I get into the specifics of her murder, I have so many questions right here, and I'm sure a lot of you have the same ones. So Red and the people who work at the hotel are the last people to see her alive. So where did her sister go? Like, why didn't she meet up with her sister? If she's leaving at 10 o'clock at night there, I would have thought her sister would have been there before that. So what happened? Is there a reason why she left before her sister arrived? Did she leave with someone? Was it willingly? Did she know George Hodel prior to this? Is that why she'd been afraid and wanted to leave town? Did he show up at the Biltmore Hotel? How did George Hodel get Elizabeth to his house? And where was she for six days? The next piece of the puzzle here is the Soudon House. Standing outside of the Soudon House leaves an impression on anyone. This is one of the most unique homes that has ever been built. Many people got to see the home when it was used as a setting during the I Am the Night series. Steve Hodell, who is the son of George Hodell, described what was probably the draw for his father when he wrote, Once inside this remarkable house, one found oneself in absolute privacy, invisible to the outside world. The house is located at 5121 Franklin Avenue in Los Angeles, California, and it was originally built in 1926. The design can leave no doubt that this is the creation of the Wright family. Frank Lloyd Wright was a legendary architect known for his unorthodox and controversial designs. I'm fortunate in that I live near Florida Southern College in Lakeland, Florida, which is a campus filled with Wright creations and a museum. As a matter of fact, it is the largest single-site collection of Frank Lloyd Wright architecture in the world. Frank had a son whom he gave his name, and Junior would go on to be an architect as well, who helped his father. He went by Lloyd and joined his father in Los Angeles in the late 1910s. One of the commissions he helped his father with was the famous Holly Hawk House. The elder Wright eventually became tired of Los Angeles and left the reins to his son. Lloyd wanted to get out of the shadow of his father's name and establish himself. He would do that designing places like the Otto Bowman House in the Hollywood Hills, the Wayfarers Chapel in Palos Verdes, and the avant-garde orchestral shells for the Hollywood Bowl. In the neighborhood of Las Feliz, he would build the Samuel Navarro House and the Soudan House. Los Feliz has shown up on the podcast before because Griffith Park and this neighborhood make up the original Rancho Los Feliz, a land grant given to a colonial Spanish-Mexican land grantee, Jose Vicente Feliz. You can hear about the haunts of Griffith Park on episode 95. The Los Feliz of the 1920s was an enclave for silent movie stars and people on the upper end of the financial spectrum. It was here that retired artist John Soudon moved with his wife Ruth, and they commissioned Lloyd to design a unique home for them, and that is certainly what he did. A lot of people have dubbed this house the Jaws house because it looks like the shark coming up out of the water when you're standing in front of it. The Soudon house is in the Mayan revival style, which I'd never heard of before. It resembled a fortress, and the Soudons had requested that it have a stage for them to host avant-garde performances. 
Also included were secret rooms and a central courtyard filled with plants, a pool, and a fountain, which were later removed. The entire structure is built from steel, and the concrete blocks used in construction were ornamental. The carved stones are so unique and really make this house. The designs are on the outside and the inside. I can't even begin to describe what they look like to you, but it's really beautiful. Obviously, I have the house up as part of the cover photo for this episode. I encourage you to Google it so you can get a look at just how this is built. But when you hear the term Mayan revival, that's exactly what it looks like. It looks like something that would have been built back in that time by the Maya or the Aztecs, something like that. The floors are wood and the windows are uniquely shaped and designed. The style of the house has been referred to as brooding and cultic. A 1938 article in the Los Angeles Times wrote of the house, it's the sculptural style of architecture. It seems it fit the building right into the landscape. One of the striking features of the Franklin Avenue structure is the mass of stone and cement which project out from the roof line. Again, looking kind of like jaws. One of the most impressive features of the house are the huge sculpted copper gates at its front. The interior is described as labyrinth-like and has seven bedrooms, four bathrooms, and covers 5,600 square feet. This house would be considered the pinnacle of Lloyd Wright's career. Unfortunately, a lot of the people who lived near this home back in the 1920s weren't real hip to it. They thought it was a monstrosity, that it was ugly, hideous. They hated it. And for that reason, John Soudon got to the point where he didn't want to live in it anymore because nobody really appreciated it. So the house was sold in 1930 to Ruth Rand Barnett, who kept it for six years and sold it in 1936. I'm not sure who that owner was, but they sold it in 1944 to someone who didn't keep it for very long. So I'm kind of iffy on the ownership during that time. George Hodel bought the property in 1945 and moved into it with his ex-wife, Dorothy. And as I said, he would also move into it with his other wife, Dorothy, and they would all just live together. Kind of weird. Steve Hodel described the house as, Once through the gate, you turned immediately to your right and continued up a dark passageway then made another right turn to the front door. It was like entering a cave with secret stone tunnels, within which only the initiated could feel comfortable. All others proceeded with great caution, not knowing which way to turn. Growing up in that house, my brothers and I saw it as a place of magic that we were convinced could easily have greeted the uninvited with pits of fire, poison darts, deadly snakes, or even a giant sword-bearing turbaned bodyguard at the door, right out of Arabian Nights. It was also a place where he and his brothers would be beat. So it wasn't a very magical place in reality. After George Hodel was acquitted of raping his daughter, he sold the Souden house and left the country. From that point until the 2000s, I'm not sure what happened with the house, but it was left in disrepair. So I believe for a large period of that time, it was basically abandoned. The house was purchased for $1.2 million in 2001 by Zoran Balbis. The house was in need of a lot of love at this time, and he spent $1.6 million in restorations. He added a pool and spa to the central courtyard and redesigned the kitchen into a large open room. Some of his changes were criticized by preservationist and Lloyd Wright's son, Eric. In 2011, Balby sold the house to a man named Stephen Fickelstein for $3.85 million. So he did manage to get his money back on it for sure. The current owner of the house is Dan Goldfarb, who purchased it in 2018 for around $4.7 million. He made his fortunes by selling cannabis to pets. His plans at the time for the property were to open a cannabis oasis in the space. As I did my research, the official website for the property was down, so I'm not exactly sure what's going on with it currently, but
but it had been offered for photo shoots and as a gathering place for events. And the house has been featured in several movies, TV shows, and music videos. This brings us to the three of these things culminating in the murder. What happened to Elizabeth between January 9th and the discovery of her body on January 15th is, of course, a mystery. Although I would say at least three people know much of what happened. George Hodel, Elizabeth Short, and Man Ray. That's my opinion, not fact. We can reason out how Elizabeth was tortured and murdered based on her body. This is gruesome stuff committed by a really sick mind. When her body was discovered in an empty lot near 39th Street and Norton Avenue in Los Angeles, it had been surgically bisected. And of course, the term surgical is used because this is somebody who knew what they were doing, clearly a doctor. I'm not sure if her body was cut in half to facilitate transport or for the purpose of creating an art piece. Now, you may have jerked your head when you heard me say an art piece, but I believe that is what this was supposed to be. George Hodel's sick, surrealist piece of art as an homage to Man Ray. And perhaps it was his art that he was sharing with the world. There are some people who believe that Elizabeth Short knew Hodel and had even posed for Man Ray at some point. A piece of art Man Ray did in 1970 features an unknown woman who has a striking resemblance to Elizabeth and has a red dahlia in her hair. The piece Le Equivoque was done in 1943 and features a nude torso of a woman with the face scratched out. Steve Hodel thinks this gave his father inspiration. And he says that for the reason of uh, the condition that Elizabeth Short's face is going to be found in when her body's found. Man Ray seems to depict the crime scene of the Black Dahlia murder in his piece Les Invendables, which was done in 1969 and features a woman's torso on top of a mythical beast body. And I totally see it when you look at the crime scene photos and you put her torso on top of this mythical beast. It looks almost exact to this piece that Man Ray did. And I actually have a link in the show notes if you want to see that picture. A lot of people also have called it Minotaur. So I think it goes by both, both of those names. The woman in the artwork, her arms are raised above her head. And that is how Elizabeth Short's going to be found as well. Steve says, I talk about his scalpel being his paintbrush and her body was the canvas. I couldn't have said it any better myself. Another Betty would find the nude and bisected body. Her name was Betty Bearsinger. She was heading down Norton Avenue with her three-year-old daughter on the way to a shoe repair shop. Many of the lots here had been left abandoned because of World War II. Betty noticed something white in the weeds that looked similar to a human body, and she initially thought it was a mannequin. You hear that story all the time. And that for some reason it had been discarded. She approached closer because she was intrigued as to why the mannequin was in two pieces. And then she realized that she was looking at a human. She screamed. She then ran to a nearby house to call the police. The first two arrive on scene were officers Frank Perkins and Will Fitzgerald, who called for backup when they saw the state of the body. Investigators made several notes about what they found. The woman had clearly been posed with her torso lying on the back and the arms raised over the shoulders. 
The lower half of her body featured her legs spread in a vulgar way, and it was just a little bit away from the upper body. The body had been mutilated, and the coroner's report would reveal some twisted stuff. The mouth resembled the Joker's smile, having been sliced from corners of the mouth to the ears. This type of mutilation is called a Glasgow smile. The reason is because the practice originated in Glasgow became very popular with English street gangs. And we would have an answer as to where Betty had been for six days, as rope marks on her wrist, ankles, and neck indicated that she had been tied up and tortured for days. Her intestines were tucked underneath her buttocks. The most peculiar thing was that the body had been drained of blood and washed. This was confirmed by Detective Lieutenant Jesse Haskins, who described the scene as, quote, The body was lying with the head towards the north, the feet towards the south. The left leg was five inches west of the sidewalk. The body was lying face up, and the severed part was jogged over about ten inches, the upper half of the body from the lower half. There was a tire track right up against the curbing, and there was what appeared to be a possible bloody heel mark in this tire mark. And on the curbing, which is very low, there was one spot of blood. And there was an empty paper cement sack lying in the driveway, and it also had a spot of blood on it. It had been brought here from some other location. The body was clean and appeared to have been washed. And many people think that the body was transported in these paper cement sacks. Elizabeth's fingerprints were taken to help identify her, and then her autopsy began. There was no sperm on the body as it had been washed, but it was believed she was violated both vaginally and anally. She had multiple lacerations to the face, arms, and head, and it was these along with head trauma that was listed as her cause of death. Her pubic hair had been removed, and there was a crisscross pattern cut into the area above her pubic bone. There was a tic-tac-toe slashing on the right hip. Pieces of flesh had been cut away from her breasts and thighs. Horribly, the flesh that was removed from her left thigh was found in her vagina, and the pubic hair that had been removed was found in the rectum. Many of the cuts were believed to have been made post-mortem, as was the bisection. People and reporters had trampled the crime scene, and there wasn't much to go on. A list of suspects was compiled, but no one was arrested. The Herald Express was owned by William Randolph Hearst, and he wheeled and dealed with the LAPD to exchange information. LAPD Captain Donahoe wasn't keen to make this deal with the devil, but he was desperate, and so he agreed to grant exclusive access to the paper if they would continue investigating clues and give the police anything they uncovered. Wayne Sutton, a Herald's Express reporter, called Phoebe Short and lied to her about Betty winning a talent contest to get information on Betty. He then told her mother that Betty had been murdered, and he offered to fly her out. He kept her from the cops and other papers. It seems they wanted to make sure they kept their exclusive exclusive, so they didn't even let her talk to the police. It was ridiculous. The paper also managed to track down Elizabeth's trunk, where she kept her photos and mementos at the Greyhound Express Station in downtown Los Angeles. On the nickname Black Dahlia, I've heard a couple of stories. One is that the newspapers came up with the name, but I also found several stories that claim she already had the nickname before her death and that the papers were merely reporting what they heard about Betty. A drugstore owner said her hair was jet black and she liked to wear it high. She was popular with the men who came in here and they got to calling her the Black Dahlia. And the inspiration for using the term Black Dahlia comes from the 1946 movie The Blue Dahlia, which starred Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake. It was a 1946 American crime film and film noir directed by George Marshall. So I'm not sure where it all originated from. I just know that everybody knows Elizabeth Short mainly by the name Black Dahlia. A lot of people don't know what her real name is. The Black Dahlia in Hollywood website reported that Betty's belongings were mailed to the newspapers in L.A., but ended up just at the post office. 
The website says at approximately 5.30 p.m. on January 24, 1947, Postal Inspector Wood telephoned police investigators and informed them that an open-ended envelope with paste-up letters addressed to Los Angeles Examiner and other Los Angeles papers had been received at Terminal Annex in downtown Los Angeles. The envelope also read, Here's Dahlia's Belongings, letter to follow. After authorities were contacted, several Los Angeles newspapers were informed. The envelope was opened in the presence of Postal Inspectors Wood and Green, Homicide Detectives Brown and Cummings, Sergeant Wheeler of the Fingerprint Unit, and several representatives from local newspapers. And here's what we get. We have an envelope that had been soaked in gasoline or kerosene, probably to remove fingerprints, and 23 items were discovered inside, all personal property of Elizabeth Short. There was a Western Union telegram regarding missing trunk shipped via REA. The Railway Express Agency Express Receipt, which was dated 6-1 of 46. Part of a sales slip printed in ink, Pacific Outdoor Advertising Company. A business card for the Pacific Outdoor Advertising Company. A business card for A.D. Bricks. A business card for E.A. Jack Kleinan, House of Hollywood Realtor. Typewritten Social Security card signed Elizabeth Short in green ink. Piece of notebook paper with Jimmy Harrigan's Army Base phone number. A torn piece of note paper with Carl Bassinger's phone number. Notebook leaf printed in pencil, Jimmy Bifolco. Scrap of paper with Wayne Gregg written in ink. ID card, Elizabeth Short in case of emergency, contact PM Short. Abstract of record registry, City of Boston, Elizabeth Short, daughter of dot dot dot. Card, Hollywood Wolves Association with member Chet Montgomery. Business card for Brant Orr, Dress and Realty Company with personal note. A Pacific Greyhound Lines parcel claim check stamp dated January 9th. One small snapshot of an aviator and a girl in a cockpit of a plane. One small snapshot of a girl in black fur jacket, black hat, buildings in background. Photo of man in army uniform standing near tree, frame house in background. Small snapshot of Elizabeth and a man. Small snapshot aviator in flying suit and parachute standing in front of plane. Woman dressed in riding habit standing beside a horse. One black address and telephone book with Mark Hansen in gold letters. I've heard former LAPD detective Steve Hodell interviewed many times. He's written several books, including Black Dahlia Avenger, that detail what he believes were the crimes of his father. Steve put forward that he thinks his father killed at least nine women and that three of them came to their end in the Souden house, including Elizabeth Short. There's evidence to back up the claim that this is true, and one of those things is that a cadaver dog named Buster was brought to the house in 2013, and he marked several places in the basement as having the scent of death. And this part of the basement is a dirt floor. Soil samples that were collected revealed the presence of human decomposition. But no digging has ever been done. I don't know. If I own the property, I'd be like, yes, please come in here and dig that up because I don't want it in my house. And Steve found that he wasn't far off when LA Times reporter Steve Lopez went through police transcripts and found that George Hodel had indeed been a suspect. The police had also bugged the Souden house during the incest trial. And in those tapes, it's believed that there are the sounds of a woman being assaulted and then there are sounds of a shovel moving dirt. George later called a friend and said, Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary because she's dead. We don't know what his secretary, Ruth Spaulding, knew, but Steve believes his father killed her. She apparently died of an overdose. But yeah, I have a feeling he murdered her as well. Now, an interesting little aside is that I also did a haunted true crime on Georgette Bauerdorf, who haunts the El Palacio apartments. She was murdered in 1944 in a horrible way, too, and the murder was never solved. She had worked at the Hollywood Canteen, and I thought that the Black Dahlia did, too, 
So I remarked in that bonus cast how their lives intersected because of these similarities, unsolved murder, horrific murder, and that they both had worked at this place together. Later, I found that there was no real proof that Elizabeth Short had worked at the Hollywood Canteen because every woman who worked there had an ID that had their fingerprint on it. And there was never an ID like that that ever surfaced for Elizabeth. So unless it was lost somewhere, I don't know. At the time, I thought, wow, maybe this Hollywood canteen is where George Hodel is meeting some of these women that he might be killing. Obviously, that theory is not true without having some kind of proof that Elizabeth had indeed worked there. Now, she came and went from so many places, and she was a good-looking girl who liked to dance with the boys. She definitely would be a prime candidate to work at the Hollywood canteen, especially if she was looking to get into showbiz. So maybe it's a possibility. I just wish we had the ID card to make it definitive. Their lives did intersect in another way, according to Steve Hadell. When I visited his website to look at the list of victims he thinks his father killed for sure, Georgette Bauerdorf is second on the list just before Elizabeth. On the bonus cast, the only suspects I really had mentioned were several servicemen, one of whom had been pretty persistent about dancing with her at the canteen on the night of her death. Is it possible she was another victim of Hadell's? The other women Steve has down as definite victims of his father, are Ora Murray in 1943, Jean French in 1947, Lillian Dominguez in 1947, Gladys Kern in 1948, Mimi Boomhauer in 1948, Jean Spangler in 1948, and Louise Springer in 1949. The podcast Hollywood and Crime did a 26-episode series opener they called The Black Dahlia Serial Killers, and it goes into a lot of detail about those deaths. So I encourage you to check that out if you want to get more information on those things. Now, with all of the negative energy that we have going on here, I mean, you're talking about we're having women who were probably tortured here, possibly raped, drugged and raped, just a lot of bad stuff going on. And then possibly we have murders that have happened here. This is just a place, this Soudon house that is screaming energy that would cause hauntings. Dan Goldfarb, who is the current owner and his wife, claimed to feel perfectly at peace at the home and believe they have not had any paranormal experiences when they've been staying there. So I don't know if they're just not being honest, or if things have calmed down because they are a calming presence, or if because the truth about George Hodel and what happened to the Black Dahlia and maybe some of these other women, because it's starting to surface now, there's not so much haunting going on because they can find a little bit of peace. I'm not sure. I mentioned that I didn't know what happened to the house between Hodel and the 2000s, but Steve Hodel claims that the house was abandoned in the 1960s and 1970s, and his half-sister Tamar broke into the house, possibly seeking some kind of closure. And when she was in there, she saw an apparition of a female. She didn't think it was the Black Dahlia, though. Ghost Adventures has been in the house to investigate, and I believe Ghost Hunters also has. Zach Baggins interviewed members of the Hodel family, and while he was talking to Tamar's daughter, Fauna, they both felt a presence near them. Fauna claimed that she had felt ill many times in the house because of the negative energy that was there. Psychic medium Patty Negri has felt that same negative energy whenever she's in the house. She says that something pushed her up against the wall, something she could not see. She, of course, goes into the house with Zach. They hold a seance. She channels some kind of spirits. They get some figures showing up on the SLR camera. They also get some weird words that are coming through on some kind of computer program that they're using. I don't know that they really got anything definitive, but to me, it seems like there definitely could be something in this house. When Ghost Hunters was investigating the house, they caught a couple of EVPs. 
one of them sounds like it's saying the word George, and another one sounds like a woman's voice saying, did you even know my name? Now, I would be remiss if I didn't mention where the spirit of the Black Dahlia has been seen, and for that, we need to leave this property and head over to the Biltmore Hotel, the last place that Elizabeth was seen. Her full-bodied apparition has been seen many times, pacing in the area where the bank of phones was once located. Obviously, we don't have banks of phones in hotels anymore, really, but she's seen in the lobby. And occasionally, she's sometimes seen in the hallways, and she's always seen wearing a black dress. And let me just let y'all know, Red claims that when he dropped her off at the Biltmore Hotel, she was wearing a black dress. And I believe she had some kind of little white jacket on top of it, kind of a suit jacket, something like that. But then again, she also left the hotel in a friend's jacket. So I don't know if it was this white jacket or if it was something else. Occasionally, she takes a ride on the elevator. One man reported his firsthand experience with the Black Dahlia. He boarded the elevator with his head down and jammed the number eight button. He noticed that the number six button was lit. So he glanced behind him and saw a young woman in the corner of the elevator. She had black hair and beautiful eyes. She seemed sad, but she gave him a faint smile. He turned his head forward again, but he could see the young woman in the reflection of the elevator doors. He noticed that she seemed dressed in clothes better suited for the 1940s. The elevator reached the sixth floor and the doors opened. The young lady did not get off as the man stepped aside. He cleared his throat and said, This is the sixth floor. Don't you want to get off? The young woman seemed startled and bustled past him. As she did, he felt an icy chill. She turned to him before the doors closed, and there was a look of urgency in her eyes, as though she were asking him for help. Just as the doors closed, he pressed the open doors button. As the doors slid back open, he saw that the young woman was gone. He glanced up and down the hallway, but she had just disappeared. Later, he was in a bookstore where he picked up a book on unsolved crimes. He flipped through the pages and was stunned to see the young lady staring back at him from one of the pages. The young woman had been the Black Dahlia. There are also reports that Short's ghost has been seen on the 10th and 11th floors. So she doesn't just get off on floor number six. She apparently likes 10 and 11 as well. A friend of Hodel's named Edmund Tesk said of this time at Soudon House, It's evil place. Artists, philosophers, accountants, and politicians, we all played and paid there. Women were tortured for sport there. Murders happened there. It's an evil place. Is there still something evil there? Is the negative energy absorbed into the stones? Is the Soudon House haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, y'all know my opinions on those things. Want to encourage you guys to check out the website at historyghostbump.com. And if you'd like to send me some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. I've been hearing from a lot of the executive producers that you really enjoyed the most recent bonus cast on cardamency. I did a bunch of readings for everybody. It was a lot of fun. Had a great time doing that. Definitely have to do some of that in the future again. I got an email from Josh. He owns a sawmill and logging operation in West Central Illinois. He sits in a control booth and saws logs for eight hours a day and listens to the podcast for a good portion of the day. He says he loves the podcast and history and the bump is an added bonus. He says it's awesome. Keep up the research and then gave me a suggestion for something to check out, which I have added to the list. So thank you for that, Josh. Also heard from Letitia. She just finished listening to episode number 300. She said she's running behind since I inspired her to binge listen to Uncovered the Village. 
By the way, the majority of listeners may be millennials, but I was 18 in 1987. So I was like, very cool. She's old like me. Thanks for all the fabulous history and spooky stuff. But thanks for the recommendations too. podcasts are the only thing keeping me sane in the cube farm some days. I heard from Allison over on Instagram. She said, just wanted to say that I recently found the podcast and absolutely love the show. A great balance of history and spooks. I listened to it driving to and from work. We live in a beautiful old Victorian house in Yorkshire, UK. It's a little creaky, so I don't listen too late at night. I bet it is. What a great house. She also suggested that she'd love to hear about some haunted stuff in York. So I've added that to the list. And then I also heard from Zena on the 300th episode. She's a native New Yorker and an ally. And she said, I can't believe how much I learned about the Stonewall Inn and riots from you. It was so personal, informative and touching. Thank you so much for recording it and speaking your truth. She said, a few weeks before I listened to the podcast, I caught a play near the Stonewall Inn and seeing all the rainbow flags and huge sponsor logos that adorn the entrance and the small park dedicated to Stonewall across the street made me beam. I love my city most of the time. And during Pride, it's an even more glittery, colorful playland. Yet people so easily forget how the celebration was paid for in blood and tears of those activists before them. And so she just thanked me for that. And I let her know it was one of my most favorite episodes I've ever produced. And uh, I'm so glad I did it. Also, I've been telling you guys, we're going to be taking a trip up to Iowa in September. We're going to be doing an overnight investigation at the Velisca Axe Murder House. We still have a couple of openings there if you guys want to join us for that. And we've added the Squirrel Cage Jail, a paranormal investigation on Thursday, September 5th. It's from 8 p.m. to midnight. It costs $35. I have all the details up on the events page over at historyghostbump.com. It's also up on our Facebook page and group. Children 10 and above are welcome to join us as long as they have a guardian. We'd love to have you guys come out and join us for that. We also have our live show coming up in West Virginia in Point Pleasant, the home of the Mothman. I'll be doing that with the Brohio podcast and Jerry and Tracy Polly from over at Hillbilly Horror Stories. And I've also booked myself for two nights at the Haunted Low Hotel there. So looking forward to doing that. You'll also find details about that and how to get your tickets. You want to get those before they sell out at the events tab at historygoesbump.com. And I'm so glad to have you guys listening to this episode. Thank you for doing that. I have been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode was brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. I want to thank Christy Bacon for raising your donation. We'll be moving you into a garden tomb. And thanks to James Wilfong for raising your donation. You'll be moving into a chest tomb. We want to welcome back into the cemetery, Rachel Cooper. You will be back in a chest tomb. And welcoming for the first time, Lauren de Armand. You will be buried under an obelisk tombstone. And Susan Putnam, we're going to put you in a chest tomb. Thanks, everybody, for your support. It's greatly appreciated. There you go, Mort. You got some more work to do. You can find History Goes Bump on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Google Play, and anywhere you can listen to podcasts.